Welcome to another episode of Money is Freedom. We're recording today in our beautiful Briarcliff studio overlooking the Missouri River Valley near Kansas City. I look out our window at both Missouri and Kansas. Way back in 2002, I wrote a book called Million Dollar Management. The idea was to share some of the science of portfolio management with novice investors. Many people then, as many people now, didn't understand that investing had grown beyond guessing at stocks or selecting bonds with the highest interest rates. Large portfolio managers employed a different approach. The largest pools of money, pension plans, charitable endowments, university foundations, applied portfolio science in a deliberate way. In simple terms, they focused more on the forest and less on the trees. My book attempted to share those lessons so that family investors could use the same techniques for family financial success. Million Dollar Management was the name I chose to emphasize that those big money lessons will work in your 401k or IRA. This series of podcasts are going to revisit and update some of those ideas. Today, the building blocks of investing. Financial instruments, stocks and bonds seem a bit abstract to some people. They aren't like gold or land where you can touch what you own and have confidence that it will be valuable to others if you need. Still, stocks and bonds are far more liquid than other valuable stuff and it's easier and faster to sell if you need money. Besides that, stocks and bonds are far less abstract than you think. Just like you have certain rights as an American or as an employee, shareholders and bondholders have legal rights too. Our system of law protects investors from almost everything except bad judgment. So before investing, you need to understand a few building blocks. Let's talk about stocks first. Owning a stock is owning a piece of a company. Let's start simple. A house isn't a business, but it can offer some lessons. If you own a house, you own everything about it the land, the garden, fish in the wading pond. You also own the roof, windows, and the decades-old air conditioner. So if the air conditioner dies, you'll have to replace it. If the garden produces zucchinis, you can keep any profits from selling them. If a neighbor's garage burns down, you can charge him or her rent to park in your garage. Now let's assume your sister owns half the house. Then, half of all those things are hers. Half the broken air conditioner, half the zucchini profits, half the garage rental. Maybe you can cut the grass each week and she'll agree to reimburse you for that. Owning a company with hundreds of other people is just like this. Your portion is based on the total number of shares and how many of them you own. Your pro rata ownership entitles you to your portion of the enterprise. Your share of the profits, inventory, buildings, land, and customer base. For a great company, that portion should continue to grow in value over time. You also get to vote on who manages the company and any big changes they propose. Each year, they have to provide a full accounting to each shareholder. That's it. Through the public stock markets, you can own shares of giant companies like Walmart, Microsoft, Apple, or Harley-Davidson. You can buy them if and when you want and keep them forever, gift them to your children, or sell them to whoever you choose. But for the time you own them, your shares entitle you to the exact same ownership as any other shareholder. If you hold them long enough, there's a high likelihood that you will sell them for more than what you paid when you bought them. Okay, so now let's look at bonds. Simply, a bond is a loan. When you buy a $5,000 bond, you loan somebody $5,000. 
They'll pay you interest until the bond matures and then give back your $5,000. Your profit is the interest you made while you owned the bond. Couldn't be simpler to understand. But the devil is in the detail. There are millions of different bonds. Some are issued by rock-solid borrowers, the U.S. government, for instance. Others are issued by cities, school districts, and large companies. With bonds, there are two extreme issues to remember. For two similar-sized bonds, the interest rate will be the same if the risks are the same. So if one offers a higher interest rate than the other, it has a higher risk of default or the bond matures a longer time down the road. So higher interest always means higher risk. In the mainstream, those rate differences are incremental, and a higher risk bond doesn't necessarily mean high risk. But beyond the mainstream, some bonds do have a high risk of default. These are often called junk bonds, and the rates can be attractively high. But buyer beware, the risk of default is high too. The other risk, longer maturities, is simply recognition that the lender is tying up their money for a longer period of time. If you want me to loan you money for 10 years, you have to pay me more than if you want my money for 5 years. As a lender, I demand a higher return if you borrow for a longer period. It's a premium I demand for giving up my money longer. In the main, bonds are a safe place to invest your money. They pay regular interest and they usually don't fluctuate as much in value as stocks. That stability may makes them the perfect hedge against a stock portfolio. Most professionals would recommend a mix of stocks and bonds for most ordinary investors. Would you rather be the owner of a company or the guy who lends to the owner? Shareholders are owners and bondholders are lenders. Now, there are a few other things that are worth thinking about. Real estate. I hear this often as an alternative to stocks and bonds, but they aren't perfect substitutes. Many real estate options require work. Owning and renting a house next door or the building down the street requires repairs, taxes, tenant management, and sometimes calls in the middle of the night. That's a part-time job, not an investment. There are ways to buy real estate investments with less manual labor, but I'd see them as an adjunct to rather than a substitute for stocks and bonds. Commodities. The same with commodities. People love gold or silver because you can hold it in your hand and it holds value pretty well across economic conditions and international borders. All that has some merit, but gold is dangerous to store, complicated to buy or sell, and hard to spend. At best, gold offers some value as part of an overall investment portfolio. Now, mutual funds. Let's say you and I pool our investment money and buy a portfolio of stocks. That's the idea behind mutual funds, except that thousands of people own part of the pool. It's a great idea and a great investment because all of us can probably build a better portfolio than any of us on our own. First, we can hold hundreds of stocks in the pool, so that's better diversification than we might do on our own. Second, we can hire a portfolio manager who has some expertise in investing and he or she is likely to do better than we would. Last, there are economies of scale for trading, research, and custodial services. Those are efficiencies and cost savings we'd be unable to duplicate on our own. Now, there are thousands of commercial mutual funds, and each has a defined investment approach, so we can tap expertise with stocks, bonds, or specific sectors of stocks and bonds. Index funds. 
Index funds are an unmanaged mutual fund. The portfolio holdings are designed to match a particular market index. The Standard & Poor's 500 index is a good example. This is a group of 500 large company stocks in the United States. Every day, the prices of those same 500 are combined in a way that creates a measure of how the group did. An S&P 500 index fund simply owns the 500 stocks in the same proportions as the index. Holders will enjoy performance returns that approximate the index throughout all market cycles. There are dozens of different indices, so there are dozens of different index funds. Exchange-traded funds. These are called ETFs, and they're similar to mutual funds, except they trade like stocks. So you can buy or sell an ETF anytime the markets are open. Mutual funds, on the other hand, trade each day at the markets closed, based on the portfolio price at 2 o'clock Eastern Time. So those are some of the building blocks. So what are some practical solutions? First, don't play at investing. Learn the basics. There are hundreds of books and resources. Stick to the reputable stuff from mainstream sources. The key to investment success is proper asset allocation. The right mix of stocks, bonds, and cash for your goals and situations. Make that decision first, then build from there. Choose stocks, bonds, or pooled investment options to meet your allocation goals. Be wary of anything other than professional advice. Friends, relatives, and colleagues, remember FRCs, I call them freaks, are a bad resource and so is television. Even if those people seem sincere and successful, they know little about your circumstances. That's a dangerous mix. And keep focused on long-term goals. Much news about the markets or world is alarmist and frightening. The long-term impact from short-term news is minimal. Last, find a good fiduciary advisor to help. Not next week or next month or when I get some money, today. You surely fall into one of two categories. You know what you need and a professional can help you get better. Or you don't know what you need, which is an even stronger case for getting professional help. One time I was working out at the YMCA and a local stockbroker jumped on the machine beside me. He asked about an investment class I was teaching at the community college, and I explained that one part of the class was a semester project where each student followed and tracked a chosen stock and a chosen mutual fund. He replied, well, the stock would be okay, I guess, but mutual funds are boring. He makes an interesting point. Mutual funds aren't as exciting as stocks. Boring may even be a good description. Still, is the point excitement or success? Mutual funds are useful because they are powerful tools for long-term investing. They are highly diversified and you can choose between hundreds of top managers. For the typical investor, mutual funds can increase the chances for success while decreasing some of the risks. Again, they can be a powerful tool for reaching financial goals. They aren't the only solution, but they may be the best solution for many investors. Actually, excitement is maybe the worst reason to choose an investment. And that comment was an awful insight into that stockbroker. There's an old story where a crowded vendor is selling fishing lures on a wharf. The lures are uniquely bright and colorful, and he can barely keep up with demand. A would-be fisherman hollers over the crowd, So, do the fish like these lures? The crusty old vendor grins back and answers, Mister, I ain't selling them to fish. Investment salespeople understand this. They have a new and exciting investment idea every single day. Those CNBC talking heads are interviewing the flashiest expert with the shiniest baubles. It's alluring, intriguing, 
and very distracting, and it sells. What it doesn't do is catch fish. If the ideas don't get you where you are going, then they are poison to your plans. Let's work together to reach your destination. Remember, money is freedom, and freedom is fun. 